This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. My branch chief asked for volunteers, so I went ahead and raised my hand. I ended up being the second person from our team uh, that went to Iraq. My job was to continue to support my team in answering questions on whether or not we would find any further evidence that Iraq was connected to 9-11 and al-Qaeda. I did that through talking to detainees that were in military custody in addition to former regime officials. What was a typical debriefing session like? And did you try to build some rapport as you kind of went into the room? And Yeah, but that sometimes worked. Other times, it, there was just so much resistance, it was clearly not going to be productive. The one exception being Tarek Aziz. I think the first time I met him was in, was in the hospital. Mm. And he decided he wanted to disarm me and throw me off. So he opened his hospital robe right in front of me, just sitting there in his underwear. Mm. I didn't respond, but yeah, that was probably the more unique. This was the foreign minister of uh, Iraq prior to the war. Yeah. You eventually become branch chief of the Zarqawi unit. Essentially, you guys are looking for him. Right. So by this point, Zarqawi had joined al-Qaeda. He took violence to a whole different level. He was basically doing anything he wanted to just sow chaos. Were you surprised that al-Qaeda in Iraq was able to bounce back and ultimately become this thing called ISIS, or did you always see the roots? He had such a broad network, and that extremist ideology we knew from what happened with al-Qaeda wasn't going away. So while it wasn't surprising that it morphed, it was slightly surprising that it morphed in such an intense, um, dynamic way that it did. Nada Bakos was an analyst and a targeting officer at the Central Intelligence Agency. Her work helped the United States successfully track one of the world's most wanted terrorists, Abu Musab al-Zakari, the founder of al-Qaeda in Iraq and the predecessor organization to ISIS. Nada is now a senior fellow in the Program on National Security at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Last week, Nada published her memoir, The Targeter, in which she shares her experience as a CIA officer. I had a chance to sit down with Nada to discuss her new book 
and what it's like to be a CIA analyst and a CIA targeter. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. NATO, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on the publication of your book, The Targeter. I know it took a while, and actually I want to come back and ask you about that at the end. But maybe the place to start our discussion is at the very beginning. You're from Montana. You grew up there. You went to school there. How did you end up at the Central Intelligence Agency? Yeah, it was a circuitous path. I really wanted to live overseas and work overseas, and I was really interested in working for an international organization. And when I graduated from undergrad, there was a bit of a recession in the U.S., not a lot of jobs. I started what year a, was this? This was in 1991. And I started a grad program actually in India, in New Delhi. And after a, like the first half of that year, I decided I wanted to go back to the U.S., um, and there just didn't seem to be a lot of options. So I chose positions that where I could get a job. And a lot of those ended up in HR, even though my academic background was in economics. And so when I saw a job uh, advertised for CIA for an organizational development person, I went ahead and applied. And so you started as a human resources officer. Yeah. What did you actually do? Well, when I came in, they were looking at trying to modernize the operations side of the house. So... I was working a bit with Rob Richard, trying to allocate resources and figure out how do we adjust this to... Rob at that time was probably the number two. In he the, was in the, the number two in operations, know, op- yeah. Operations, yes. So he, of course, in, in the good case officer way, was trying to recruit me to come, or, come over to the DO side and be a case officer. Um, I, you know, I did that job for a little while uh, up, into, up until 9-11. And then you transitioned to be an analyst. Yes. Right. How did that happen? There was an opening in uh, OTI, or Office of Transnational Issues, and it was a, in illicit finance. So I applied for that role and thankfully got in, um, and that changed, obviously, the trajectory of my career there. So I started in the predecessor office to OTI. I started in the Office of Global Issues, and it's it's had a bazillion different names over the years, but I actually started there. So Nada... Can you give the listeners a sense of what it's like to be an analyst at CIA? What does a kind of a typical day look like? We've had a lot of operations officers on the show, but not a lot of analysts. Right. So what is it like to be an analyst? And that's also one of the reasons I wrote this book. I just felt like there's just not a lot of analysts who write books in addition to women who write books. An analyst's job is, you know, listeners have probably heard you talking about it as well, is really to digest information, pick out the salient pieces, and write products for the policymaker or brief the policymaker. So it's, while it doesn't sound sexy, it's really, really interesting work because you get to see a huge swath of information. So I'm going to get a lot of people mad at me here on the operational side of the agency, but I actually think the point of the spear is the analytic side, right? That's the representation of our work to the people who make decisions, right? And so I think it, it is extraordinarily important. Richard Helms, who is a beloved director, used to say the most important thing the agency does is analysis. Um, I agree. It's the culmination of all of the efforts coming together. Right. So you were part, prior to the war in Iraq, you were part of the team that was tasked with addressing the link between Iraq and, and al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? 
So I came into the team. It was kind of the second iteration of the team. It had a new branch chief. Um, she was fantastic. She had been a briefer. I think she's a mutual friend of ours. Yes, yes. <laughs> and she was really, you know, building the analysis around the question of whether or not Iraq had anything to do with 9-11 and Al-Qaeda. And so we were continually uh, working with operations side of the house to to collect information, fill in any gaps that we had. A lot of questions we were being asked by by the policymakers. Lots right? of questions, yes. yes. Is there a link? Is there a link? Is there a link? Yes. And you guys had to answer that. We did. And what did you what did you conclude? The ultimate conclusion was that there was not a link, um, to put it plainly. There we couldn't find substantial evidence that Saddam had ever really worked with Al Qaeda and there was no link between Iraq and nine eleven. Right. And we I think we did say that there was some communication between them going way back. But even that turned out to be wrong. Right. Exactly. At the end of the day. Yes. If I remember correctly, we wrote two papers. Mm -hmm. We wrote a paper that said if we were going to make a case that there was a link, here's the best case we can make. And were you there for that? That was I think you're referring to the murky paper. Yes. I came in right after that. Yes. So we wrote that paper, which I think gave the wrong impression a little bit. Yes. And then we corrected it. And I remember I was then the number three on the analytics side of the agency, and we put out kind of the paper. And it didn't get a great response from the policymakers, if I remember correctly. And did you guys feel that? With the... the Scooter Libby in particular. Yes, we did. So it was a long paper, and we called it the Bible, because everything we had had gone into it, um, trying to to at least fill in all of the gaps that we had on the collection as much as we possibly could. So that paper didn't resonate necessarily with the White House. It didn't resonate with pieces of the Pentagon. So we had, the again, the continual questions about around some of the nuances of the analysis that we had in the paper. Yeah. So the paper concluded um, no relationship. Yeah. No Iraqi involvement in 9-11. Yep. No Iraqi foreknowledge of 9-11. Right. And yet some members of the administration continued actually to this very day to suggest that there was a link. Right. And this is where uh, all the sound bites that we're seeing in the media now on, on all the news networks where administration comes out and with this sort of nuanced language of trying to push this narrative that changes the trajectory of the truth. That was happening a lot, especially with this issue and even, I think, probably on the WMD side to a certain extent, but certainly with the issue of whether or not Iraq was connected to al-Qaeda. The implication was from some members of the White House and some members of DOD is that there was some kind of connection. And how did you guys, this, this is a question about, I guess, about me at the end of the day and the people on the seventh floor. How did you feel you were supported with regard to what you were saying and the pushback you were receiving? Um I mean, I had a fantastic chief. You know, she had a lot on her shoulders in the sense of this was such an unprecedented moment, I think, for us in time. She, because she had that connection and experience with the White House, I think she was leading a lot of the effort and some of the direct communication um, just because she was capable. So on one hand, we were um, probably interacting more with directly with senior leadership than a a traditional team would be at the same time we felt right. supported from the seventh floor. Right. Well, you know, we 
we got a lot of things wrong on Iraq, but this piece we got right. And you should feel very good about that. Um, I know I do, but you should feel really good about that. So, Nada, after the initial invasion of Iraq, you do a tour in Iraq. Were you asked to go? Did you volunteer? How did that happen? Uh, we, my branch chief asked for volunteers. So I went ahead and raised my hand. I ended up being the second person from our team uh, that went to Iraq. I really didn't have any idea what to expect. When did you go? It was, I left D.C. in May of 2003. 2003, okay. At the end of May. The, you know, the person that went right before me, he was in kind of in a slightly different situation. (laughs) He had aligned himself with um, a case officer who had been there for a little bit longer. So they had the structure kind of set up and a routine set up for what they did on a, on a daily basis. When I got there, the DO had changed over. So we were rebuilding the structure of what we needed to do and achieve on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So, so what did you do? What was your job? My job was to continue to support my team in answering questions on whether or not we would find any further evidence that Iraq was connected to 9-11 and Al-Qaeda. So how did you do that? I did that through talking to detainees that were in military custody in addition addition to former uh, regime officials like Tariq Aziz. And sort of tell me how that worked. You were taken, they were, you went to their cell, they were taken to a debriefing room. How did did that work? How did you, and and, how did you find that, right? Because you're... Right. Trained analyst, and all of a sudden you're face to face with yes people who are under arrest. So, um, working a little bit through uh, the, one of the, I think it was a deputy chief of station at the time. He w- he had told us kind of what the structure was for the detainee population. So I worked with the general population, which we were set up in these sort of plywood debriefing rooms when they would just pull them out of these pens that at Baghdad International Airport and set them up. And for once, they had shade. I think, you know, it was essentially a break for them. Mm -hmm. Um, With the regime officials, they were held in a separate area. Um, We were in buildings where we were able to to talk to them for longer periods of time. And what was a typical debriefing session like? Well, with the general population... It varied. Some of these guys were arrested because they were suspected to be what we were terming insurgents. And some of these guys uh, suspected could be foreign fighters. And my whole interest really at the time was, were these guys working with Darkawi? Where is he? Is he still in the country? And what is he doing at that moment? Did you have a kind of standard set of questions? No. Um, or <laughs> It depended on, on the circumstances of how the person was arrested. So I would have to just play it by ear how cooperative this person was going to be, um, what their background was. There was a lot of regime, like former military, some former Iraqi intelligence service. It would just depend. And did you try to build some rapport as you kind of went into the room? And Yeah, but that sometimes worked. Other times it would, there was just so much resistance it was clearly not going to be productive. Mm-hmm. Um, the one exception being Tariq Aziz. Uh, I think the first time I met him was in, he had a heat stroke. He was in the hospital. Mm. And he was in a hospital robe, as most people are when they're in the hospital, sitting across from me on a cot. And he decided he wanted to disarm me and throw me off. So he opened his hospital mm. robe mm. right in front of me, just sitting there in his underwear. Mm. 
I didn't respond, but yeah, that was probably the more unique. This was the foreign minister of, of yeah. Iraq prior yes. to the war. Yeah. Yeah. So what what were your enduring memories of that first tour? I mean, what, what, what really stands out to you? I think more than anything was the lack of cohesion of process and strategy. What were we going to do once we were there? Once everything was dismantled, we didn't seem to have a plan. There's no way to put anything back together. And we as a government. We as a government yeah. and a coalition. We just didn't seem to have um, any any kind of plan to be able to provide electricity, water, any kind of infrastructure after did, it was taken apart. Did you have a sense? Did you have a sense when you were there that this was going to head in the wrong direction as a result of that? Yeah, I did. Um, I remember having a phone call with my husband. Well. It wasn't yet my husband at the time. Just relaying to him how hopeless it already started to seem. Mm-hmm. Because we didn't really have a grasp of what was happening, I thought, on the ground in a, in a way that would be productive. This was going, clearly ramping up to be a huge fight. Yeah. Nada, a few months after you return from Iraq, you quit. Yeah. In fact, you sent a resignation email, I understand, but days after that, you were back at work again. What what happened? There, w- so people smarter than me had started peeling off my branch, going to other jobs. They had been there quite a while. It was burnout essentially. I stayed on longer as an analyst, largely to prove myself. This was the first, you know, really high profile account I had been on. Um, I was writing a lot of the presidential daily briefs at that point. I just. I was burned out and I was really tired of answering the same question over and over and over again. That came back to me constantly. In addition to trying to keep up on the daily intelligence that was coming in and trying to provide that information back to the policymaker. And so you said, I'd had enough. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had filled full brain capacity at that point and I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. And so you say, I'm, I quit. And then what happens? I uh, ended up getting a call from another senior manager who worked in the counterterrorism center and said, Why Did you have you... any idea what you were going to do, that you were going to go work someplace else? Or well, <laughs> were, were you going to figure that out later? I had, I did have an offer from um, one of the contractors. But I wasn't really interested in it. I was just, the you know, offer letter had been sitting at my house and I hadn't done anything with it at that point. I, when I got the call from the senior manager from the counterterrorism center and he said, Why don't you come back into the DO side? the operation side of become a targeting officer, that just had a lot more allure to me. And what was it about being a targeting officer that was different than what you were doing before that excited you? Well, having the strategic background of, of the DI and the type of analysis that we did there and being able to apply that to um, working with the action arms and trying to dismantle Zarqawi's network was I felt like at least at that point I'd be doing something versus answering a question. So maybe we should take a second to tell the listeners what is a targeting officer and what does a targeting officer do? At that time, they were just in the operation side. Now they're on both sides of the house. But on the operation side, their job is to either recruit and look for assets for the U.S. government to, to recruit. find the person who has yes. the information we need. That will spy for us. Yep. Or it's to target individuals that we are looking for, like Zarqawi or bin Laden or members of al-Qaeda. So to find them, find to out find where them. they are. Yes. And what's the difference 
between what an analyst does on a day-to-day basis and what a targeting officer does? Is there much of a difference? There, it's still analysis, but it's tactical analysis. So you move from trying to really paint this broader picture to much smaller, not necessarily a pinhole version, but a much smaller bandwidth of information that you're looking at. So you're really trying to just find ways, insertion points and vulnerabilities to dismantle a network or an organization. Yeah. One of the things you talk about in the book is that you felt as being an analyst, particularly on the Iraq al-Qaeda question, is you were always looking backward, mm-hmm. right? And one of the things you liked about targeting is essentially you were looking forward, right? right? That played a role in, in how you felt about the two jobs? It did. And really, you know, traditional analyst job is you are looking forward. And that's what was so interesting and exciting about being an analyst, so going to the targeting officer role in some way was like being a, a traditional analyst again. Maybe in retrospect, I should have looked for another analyst job. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, no, I think you did okay. I think you did okay as a targeting officer. So, Nada, you eventually become branch chief of the Zarqawi unit. So what's the Zarqawi unit? Essentially, you guys are looking for him, right? Right. So by this point, Zarqawi had joined al-Qaeda. Um, his organization, when he was, you know, building up within uh, Iraq, was garnering all the resources and money and recruits that Al Qaeda traditionally had drawn. So, and was we were, he in Iraq prior to the war? You know, he moved into northern Iraq right prior to the invasion. He had set up a, a camp that included a rudimentary poisons lab in northern Iraq. And he was co-located with another uh, indigenous terrorist organization. And then when the vacuum occurs, he he starts filling it. Right. So he was basically lying in wait, waiting for that vacuum to occur so that he could take advantage of it. And extremists start joining him because yeah, he's got this great personality. And he's got he already had built a network. He was co-located with Al Qaeda in Herat, Afghanistan, in the late '90s. So he he'd already been building this extremist network for a while. And what made him so special? I guess what made him so good from one perspective, right, and so bad from another perspective. Right. He took violence to a whole different level. This was one of the first times that we had seen a tactic that had continuous rolling vehicle bombs. So he would take two or three vehicles and load them up with IEDs and push them through to a target one at a time, one right after another. It has caused huge destruction. It was one of the first times that we'd actually seen that. We'd seen mention of that as a plan before, but had not ever seen it executed. He was also targeting civilians, um, other Muslims, lots of Shia. He was basically doing anything he wanted to just sow chaos. And you talked about the relationship between him and al-Qaeda, and that evolved over time. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, when he first joined al-Qaeda, there was this struggle between how he was supposed to build his strategy according to what Al-Qaeda Central wanted and then what Zarqawi wanted. So they, they, was, they were butting heads for a while. And eventually he won that and wasn't war. And wasn't part of the debate they wanted him to focus on the foreign presence and he yes. wanted to focus on creating this dynamic between Sunnis and Shia in Iraq? That's exactly right. So he was he was wanting to just make sure that he was taking advantage of the situation internally, they wanted him to go after the foreign targets because they were still really focused on the United States and Western European countries, Al-Qaeda. And what was, by focusing on the internal target, what was he trying to achieve? Well, at that point, he 
He had a point plan that ISIS actually took and co-opted. Caliphate was toward the bottom of his list. He wanted to control territory so that he could start building his own caliphate. And people need to know that that this organization that he created, al-Qaeda in Iraq, eventually morphs into ISIS. Yes. Someday. So you then go back to Iraq for a second time. When did you go and what did you do? So this was as a targeting officer. I actually was managing the team at the time, and we had a person that was co-located with special forces. So... Well, we had a person rotating through there, um, and in, in addition to sometimes having uh, people in Baghdad, we were working with special forces, we were working with station, and we were really trying to take advantage of any kind of vulnerabilities we could find within uh, Zarqawi's organization. So special forces was quite, quite often our action arm. And that's, that was true in Afghanistan, and yes. it's probably still true today. Yes. So, Nada, you had some near misses in in getting him. In fact, in February of 2005, uh, you almost got him, but he got away. What happened? We had intelligence from somebody who was tired of Zarqawi taking advantage of everybody that said he'd be traveling at a certain period of time with another individual um, in a white pickup truck. So we had surveillance. Um, We were able to see overhead where we saw a pickup truck leave a certain point that was navigating toward a destination that we were told about. So special forces then lined up, um, so you thought that scrambled. was him. You we thought. thought that was him. Uh, they scrambled up behind. They were still a good half mile away, but we had surveillance overhead. And, but at the time our surveillance wasn't able to see through some clouds and some of the tree canopy. So he would disappear periodically. And then he pulled into a farmhouse into what Montana, we call a shelter belt of trees and we couldn't see him he got out of the truck and ran so by the time special forces pulled up the individuals were gone but there was a laptop that was left inside the pickup yeah so how did how did you and your team feel at that point it oh, that was it on one hand it was it was fantastic we were able to get that close figured we, that we could again but on the other hand to be able to be that close and not actually um, capture him or kill him at that point, that was incredibly frustrating. Yeah. So then you return and you do another job transition. Yes. Right? And then, but we eventually do get him. Yes. So about three months prior to Zarqawi being killed, I transitioned to another job within the operations field. And um, so my, my former colleagues uh, and some of the team that I had worked with and the U.S. military ended up getting him. And, and how, did, how did that happen, to the extent you can talk about it? They had, actually, uh, human intelligence um, about where and when he would be arriving at a, at a certain place. So U.S. military was actually able to, to leverage all of that information and, and continually update intelligence, also working with um, the CIA, and they ended up killing him. So then how did you, how did you hear about it, right? And how did you feel? So I was I was with work colleagues. We were actually um, traveling at the time, and I came down into this hotel lobby, and they told me they saw it on the news um, that he'd been killed, and I I was shocked. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was coming. Right? We were he's inside this country. There's coalition forces everywhere, but it was I felt like it was a huge relief. I knew it wasn't the end of anything necessarily, but it was a huge relief. Yeah. And then were you 
Were you surprised that al-Qaeda in Iraq was able to bounce back um, and ultimately become this thing called ISIS, or did you always see the roots of that? He had such a broad network, and that extremist ideology we knew from what happened with al-Qaeda wasn't going away. So while it wasn't surprising that it morphed, it was slightly surprising that it morphed in such an intense, um, dynamic way that it did, drawing so much from Iraqi. Did we know of... um al-Baghdadi at that time? We knew of him, but he wasn't a player necessarily, but he became radicalized, we know, you know, before Zarqawi really took over. So Was he a member of al-Qaeda in Iraq? Um, remember? If he, I don't know if he ever swore bayat to Zarqawi, but he certainly was part of that network. So, so Nada, then you decide to leave CIA. Yeah. Right? Why? Mm. Well, my husband... At the time, didn't work there. It's really difficult to... I wanted to live overseas. I didn't really want to go back to the mothership in D.C. that badly for a long period of time. And it's really difficult to ask somebody who's mid-career to senior career to move every few years with me overseas in different capacities. So that was just the right um, moment for us both to make that change. Yeah. Do you miss it? I do miss it. Yeah, I missed it right away. Yeah. I miss the camaraderie. I yeah. miss the ability to, you know, focus on different topics at any given time. It was, it's a great place to kind of reinvent yourself. Yeah. So a lot of discussion in your book about the role of women at CIA. Let me ask you two questions about that. One is you saw a difference in the role that women had on the analytic side of the agency and the role that they had on the operational side of the agency. Can you talk about that? So on, on the analyst side, uh, you know, it, it was largely, there was largely gender equity. It seemed to be e- semi-equal numbers. You were really judged on your capability and the products that you write. As you know, when we send things out to uh, for our colleagues to, to tear apart, <laughs> they do it equally. It doesn't matter who you are. They want to make sure that we have the analysis right. On the operations side, it still felt very um, misogynistic at times. Sometimes I was the only woman in the room in, in various meetings. And I, I was looking around for someone to be a mentor, mm. especially because I wasn't a case officer. And it was just really difficult to find women that were able to, like, create a balance mm-hmm. working on the ops side. And, I mean, I saw this. Um, and, in fact, I saw it to the point where we made a decision to bring in Madeleine Albright and have her look at this issue of what happens to women on the operational side of the agency. And she wrote a great report and made a whole bunch of recommendations, and I sure hope they've been implemented because there was, there was a difference, absolutely. Second question, second question about women, which is that a, a lot of has been made about women as targeters, right? Most targeters yeah. are women. And then people even make the argument that women make better targeters than men. What's your sense on that? So I don't... I always push back on that narrative because I think regardless of who you are, it depends on individual skill sets, right? That's like saying men are gen- are generally better at X because they're men. I don't think that's true, and it depends on the person. Regardless of what gender you identify with, you're capable of, of doing great things. There were a lot of women focused on al-Qaeda before 9-11. It wasn't a super sexy job. There wasn't an immediate payoff, and I think women are willing to put up with that to a certain extent. Patient. Um, yeah, and not looking for that um, bump in career, I guess, at the time. But 
there were lots of men working, focusing on the analyst side, also on Al-Qaeda. Some fantastic analysts who I, I highly respect. So uh, there is has been a lot said yeah, about yeah, women doing yeah. that. Some but, documentaries yeah. have, have, that's been a theme of the documentary. Uh, yeah, it was part yeah. of one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Nada, you've been great with your time. Just a few more questions. Number one, um, a role like yours was fictionalized. Uh, the role of a targeting officer was fictionalized in the film Zero Dark Thirty, which I'm sure you've seen. So how accurate is that as a description of a targeting officer? I think I should ask you that question. <laughs> I would love to flip this interview around. <laughs> no, I, I get to ask the questions here. <laughs> um, I mean, that wasn't really my experience as a targeting officer. I'm sure it was, you know, that one single person, um, her experience as she saw it, I, I personally saw everything as a much broader, bigger team effort. Um, I think what happened in the film is that they had to create one, absolutely one person who did everything. Right. Um, it's hard to have a huge ensemble cast and do a movie. Right. Right. The second question was in your mind, how much of the breakthroughs that happen in a targeting case are attributable to a moment of intuition, a moment of brilliance, and how much just really hard data work? There there were some people that actually, analysts that had worked for me, that I was just amazed at their ability to find and dig up and create these just connections that were, initially when we talked about it, just didn't seem plausible. But they would end up finding these nuggets um, on hunches mm-hmm. and be able to make those connections and they would turn into real-time operations. And sometimes I think it is based on your instinct and there is some value to being able to have some inherent sk- skill to do that job. And, and where, do you, where do you think those hunches and intuition, where do you think that comes from? Knowing how either the individual target functions or else understanding the organizational dynamics. Where... Where would they go to leverage their strength at this point? So, so real deep knowledge yes. of the target and the organization Absolutely. that you're looking at yes. creates a moment where you say, that's not the way they would do this. This is the way they would do yeah. it. I think we should focus on this. Exactly. Interesting. And Nada, one last question. This one related to your book. You've been very vocal about the frustrations of getting your book through the publication review process at CIA. We all sign a piece of paper when we start to work there that we will do that the rest of our lives, right? You even filed a lawsuit to get your book broken yeah. loose, so to speak. What happened? What was what was going on there? I had sent it in, like, as I was supposed to, the, the entire manuscript. I didn't hear anything back for a long period of time. And by the time I actually did receive, some, receive something, I think it was at least a year and a half later. So you sent it and you didn't hear anything for a year and a half? Right. Wow. It came back largely black with zero explanation. There were some things that they said, well, if you change this, it can be that. But there were huge chunks of this that were just completely redacted. And they couldn't answer some of those questions because it was done by another agency. Some of it was done by DOD. Um, and... I couldn't sit down with anybody. They weren't willing to, to just, just discuss why they, why yeah. they thought something. Was so classified. I had no book at that point and I couldn't even move forward with um, publishing. So without getting answers, I ended up having to file a lawsuit so that I could at least try to clarify what more I could be doing differently 
And that's when they actually sat down and we had a whole discussion. So I talked to several different agencies um, and individually and worked through the process. But there's there, it, the process is so broken. So, so at the end of the day, how different is what was published from what you originally sent them? How much ended up being redacted? I would say uh, 25% of it was completely redacted and removed, um, and another 30% changed. Mm -hmm. And when they explained to you why they wanted it redacted, did it make sense to you? Um, 10% of it did. There was some stuff that they just gave back to me when I'm sitting there, you know, we're sitting there discussing it. They were like, you can have that back, you can have that back. So there really wasn't any rhyme or reason as to why they redacted the information, some of the information that they did. Interesting. So after more than two years of going through that, the book's out. So yes. you must feel really good about it. Very much. It is was a labor, but it's um, it's really nice to just finally have it out there. Nada, thank you so much for your time today. The book is The Targeter, and the author is Nada Bacos. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That was Nada Bacos. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.